Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with physicist Marcelo Gleiser and novelist Marilyn Robinson. There is a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, can I welcome you to the Kirby Theater, where we're honored to be present at the recording um, of a discussion uh, between uh, one of America's leading broadcasters, uh, Krista Tippett, and our two distinguished guests. In a moment, I'll invite Krista to introduce our two distinguished guests. But may I first introduce uh, Krista Tippett. In 2004, I was a resident scholar at the Center of Theological Inquiry for six months. I had a wonderful time, except for the fact my my wife wasn't with me and my children, I was on my own. Uh, I got occasional conjugal visits uh, from from Scotland. Um, But apart from Apart from that, it was a lonely life, a scholarly life. Uh, Apart from one voice that cheered me on my way through my six months at CTI, on a Sunday morning at 7 a.m., I heard this show by accident called Speaking of Faith, um, where this highly intelligent, nuanced, thoughtful interviewer led theologians, religious leaders, scientists into an in-depth conversation on the meaning of their work and their lives and their contribution to the flourishing of the world. And I became completely hooked to that weekly broadcast of Speaking of Faith uh, by uh, Krista Tippett. We have behind us our new CTI banner, which has our logo, the tree, a tree in winter waiting for spring, waiting for the new life, waiting for the fresh inquiry, and our motto, an environment for fresh thinking. This was a phrase used by our founder, James McCord, who said in the uh, first brochure for the center issued in 1983 before our building opened in 1984, a brochure that I'm sure he wrote with John Templeton because it has a brilliant business plan as well as a visionary educational statement. Uh, McCord said that the Center of Theological Inquiry was designed in every aspect to be an environment conducive for fresh thinking, an environment conducive for fresh thinking. That is our mission. And when I heard Krista Tippett's program, Speaking on Faith, I knew I was listening to a kindred spirit. She describes her program as a spacious uh, conversation on the big questions at the center uh, of human life. So our banner being unfurled for the first time this evening, an environment for fresh thinking, shows the bond that CTI has with Krista and her colleagues at now the program On Being. We're both committed to a spacious conversation and in the media and in the academy being an environment for fresh thinking. Krista, welcome. You do us a great honor by coming and spending not only this evening with us and recording this for your show, but spending the next three days as a colleague around the table and we're honored by that. Krista Tippett is an honorary trustee of the Center of Theological Inquiry. Will you please welcome our distinguished guest? Well, 
Will, Will and I are part of a, we have a mutual admiration society, and I share his delight in, uh, in the kindred spirit between us, and I'm thrilled to be here. Um, you know, I did not prepare an introduction to these two. I, I don't think Marilyn Robinson needs any introduction. Can I say that you are one of the most requested names that comes through our, our email inbox of my program, <laughs> year after year? So finally, here you are. Um, the author of Housekeeping, Gilead, Home, and Absence of Mind, which is the book that we're going to focus on especially tonight. Um, and Marcelo Gleiser, I have just uh, gotten to know through Will. What is the name of your book? A Tear? A Tear at the Edge of Creation. A Tear at the Edge of Creation, a fabulous book. And I'm so happy. I mean, I'm happy to be here for many reasons, but I'm happy to be introduced to this work and this writing um, for this event tonight. So, um, Will gave the evening this lovely, evocative title, which I was thrilled to take on, The Mystery We Are. And I want to start with that phrase. Um, actually, I would like to start with you, Marcelo. Um, you grew up in Brazil. You've written that growing up in the tropics is a blissful portal into the natural world. I wonder if you could just say a little bit about um, how you trace back to your earliest life your sense of mystery as something thrilling and animating and also eventually linked to science? Well, um, I grew up in Rio in particular and right in front of the ocean. So um, it's impossible not to be amazed by the enormity of nature when you have that huge, beautiful Atlantic Ocean in front of you. And, uh, and I was lucky that my grandparents had a house in the mountains about two hours from Rio, which we used to go to, which is part of what is called the Atlantic Forest, which is this incredibly luscious, full of life, orchids and bromelias exploding everywhere. And uh, that enchanted Charles Darwin when he went down there, you know, in the Beagle, and he talked about the, this, this, this power of nature. So I think from a very early age, I was just uh, mystified by, this, by the beauty of this. And, um, and, uh, and I wanted to understand how was that all possible, you know? And uh, initially, I, I looked for, for, for answers, so to speak, to religion. You know, I, I grew up in a Jewish family, and I went to, I had a very formal Jewish education. Um, and then I didn't feel satisfied with, with that. I wanted something different. And then for my bar mitzvah, I actually got an autographed picture of Albert Einstein who was in Brazil in 1925, and he was hosted by a grandfather. Right. So I was blown away by that, and, and I decided and to was, know who was this man. He was visiting the Jewish community there, which is, I think, a part of Einstein's life that we don't hear as much about. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. So Einstein, uh, you know, after he became a superstar, uh, he went down uh, to South America to raise money for the Zionist cause. So the Jewish community is all kind of got galvanized by this. And it turns out that his host in Rio was my grandfather. And, and they took a picture together, you know, and they both <laughs> autographed this. And that became my little altar, you know, this man. And so I would worship and uh, I would learn about him more and more. And I said, you know, I want to do this. I want to. And one thing that he always wrote about was about the mystery of nature as the driving force behind science and scientific curiosity. And to me, that spoke to me directly. 
you know, that uh, science was not so much about finding all the answers, but actually about courting with the mystery of the unknown. Mm. And I still feel that way. Mm. Um, and Marilyn, you grew up in Idaho, which you describe also as a place of more, more austere but intense beauty. Um, so I want to ask you the same question. You know, how do you trace the roots of your sense of mystery also as something that came to be an animating force for you as a novelist and a writer? Well, my grandparents had a house in the mountains, not, <laughs> not terribly far from where I lived. Um, the, uh, it, was, it was in the western side of the Rocky Mountains, um, near Canada. And uh, the proportion, or the disproportion, of nature on the one hand and human settlement on the other was really striking. It, I mean, even I mean, as a child, I grew up with the idea that children, I mean, that uh, human beings were a fairly trivial uh, presence in the environment and that the mountains, you could hear them all the time. You could smell them. There was pine in the air or snow or whatever. Um, my grandparents had a house built actually by my great-grandparents, which was uh, modern in the, by the standards of the late 19th century. And so it had a sleeping porch. You were supposed to sleep out there so that you wouldn't get tuberculosis. And uh, I didn't. But in any case, uh, it was amazing because at night, there was no ambient light. You would hear the mountains. You would hear coyotes. You, you know, and uh, there was no other light. There was no sense of human presence aside from my grandparents' house. And for me, because of the atmosphere that of my own childhood, uh, this became very, very deeply associated with theology for me, with religion, with the idea of the the presence of God. Um, and I, I think that the uh, the sort of fusion is characteristically American in a lot of ways. When I went to to college in New England and read the Transcendentalists, I thought, exactly, you know. Um, but you know, grandparents <laughs> can be an enormously rich formative experience, and they certainly were for me. Hmm. So, in in your recent writing, each of you is driven from different directions by an observation that we have been working, thinking, acting on outdated models of reality. Um, a, a limited conception of humanity and of the universe uh, and even of science. Um, I mean, Marcelo, you talk about growing up, as you, became, as you became interested in science, fascinated with this idea of unification, which was an idea of Einstein. Um, and you talk about going to grad school following this intellectual holy grail. Mm -hmm. um, but you don't quite see it that way anymore. Right. Um, so just to clarify, right, one of the grand goals of modern physics is to build a theory of everything, a toe, not a very beautiful name, but uh, a theory of everything that would, in principle, explain all that we can observe on nature in terms of a single force, so to speak. And, um, and it's a very beautiful idea. It's very Platonist in its essence, you know, that uh, the essence of nature is mathematical. There is one big symmetry out there, and that symmetry is beautiful, and beauty is truth, <laughs> like John Keats says. And hence, you know, there has to be that sort of idea in nature as well. And a lot of people, including Einstein, Einstein spent 20 years of his life 
looking for this theory of everything, this unified theory. And um, of course, he didn't find it. And uh, my point, I went to grad school trying to find it too, right? And um, after many years doing this and talking to lots of my colleagues, I came to the conclusion that that's impossible. That uh, the theory of everything is, is it's an impossibility as a matter of principle. Because um, Isaiah Berlin actually used to call the notion that there is an absolute answer for everything the Ionian fallacy, because of the Ionian philosophers that would say that everything is one. And, um, and the problem is this, is that the way we understand the world, um, and interrupt me if I go on for too long. No, that's no, good. The way, <laughs> we're all we're the, with you. The way we understand the world is very much based on what we can see of the world, right? Science is, is based on measurements and observations. And, and the notion that we can actually come up and have a theory that explains everything assumes that we can know everything, right? That we can go out and measure everything there is to measure about nature and come up with this beautiful theory of everything. And that is essentially impossible because um, we are predicated by our ability to measure things. And since we cannot measure all there is to measure, since our tools have limitations, we are definitely limited in how much we can know of the world. So you can even build a theory that would explain everything that we know now, but then two weeks from now, someone else will come and find something new that does not fit in your theory, and that's not a theory of everything anymore because it doesn't include everything that can inclu be included. And, and, and you also say that, I mean, the implication of that <clears throat> is um, this, this sense that there would be some uh, apprehension of reality of the universe, which would be perfect. It would be about stasis and perfection. But you say, but this this new uh, vision that you have, or th the way you're seeing it now, is is more about the universe being about change and transformation and our knowledge, and and that being the state of things. Yes, that's true. So um, the idea when you look out right into the nature, and I think we can go back to our grandparents' house for that. <laughs> everything is in transformation, right? I mean, things are in transformation at all times, and we see this at the at the very small, and you see this at the very large. When you look at the whole universe as a whole, as is is expanding, it's growing, it's changing in time, and so uh, to me, I look at things much more as a state of flux you know, of becoming, of transformation, as something that has some static truth behind it, let's put it that way. Um, and, and so the notion that we as humans could come up with a final answer to the mystery of, of nature is, um, it's pushing things a little too far for our capabilities, let's put it that way. Have you had a lot of pushback from your fellow physicists? And, Some, I mean, because you know. you're also, I mean, you're, you're pushing against string theory as well and all of this because that is all a way still of trying to find this, find this unified theory, something that pulls it all together. Yeah, so I did feel a little bit of pushback from my colleagues, especially from the so-called string theorists who are people who have been spending a whole life trying to find the steer of everything, you know. And, and what I do is almost, you know, even though I'm being a bit of an iconoclast and say, don't look for the perfection of things, but focus on the imperfection of things if you really want to understand what's going on. Um, I'm also being guided by data, you know, by what observations have been telling us. And what we have been seeing, you know, as we learn more and more about the world, is that really the notion of symmetry is a wonderful tool 
to build models to explain stuff, but it's just a tool that nature, in essence, is asymmetric, and it's not as beautiful as we would like it to be. But that asymmetry is beautiful, too. Exactly. Asymmetry right. is beautiful, too. And I actually, uh, in, in my book, I remember I mentioned Marilyn Monroe with one mole, right? Well, we don't call it a mole. <laughs> we call it a beauty mark, right? And because it makes her more beautiful. Then I said, imagine if she had two exactly distant from each other. She would be horrible, right? <laughs> so the notion that that breaks the symmetry of her face and makes her more beautiful, to me, is sort of a metaphor for the notion that perhaps physics has been using a very antiquated model of beauty in order to understand the world. And Marilyn, in, in absence of mind, um, I mean, you're, you're saying many things, but I, I think to, to simplify, one, one thing you're saying is that, that modern people don't understand how thrilling and rich science is now, and that, that, that culture has an antiquated view of science's place. Mm -hmm. That's, I, I teach graduate students, I teach highly educated graduate students, and I find that their uh, level of understanding of science is pretty abysmal. And I wonder what it is that makes a culture that really creates its fate and its future, basically, out of science, is not telling people. Uh, you know, the, the thing about science, contemporary science, is that it is as profound in its revelation, certainly, as Galileo ever was, or Copernicus, you know? Um, the fact that we can know things that absolutely revolutionize previous models of the universe we inhabit, and that it doesn't matter aesthetically, philosophically, uh, theologically. That's just astonishing to me. It's a, the most perverse break <laughs> from Western thought, you know? And, and uh, often, I mean, th this amazing expansion in every, you know, a, a kind of an expansion into the microcosm, an expansion into the macrocosm, all these things that are happening are extremely beautiful, and they are an enormous mirror of the, the competencies and the aspirations of the human mind. Mm. And I think, how are we not, how are we letting people miss out on this? You know, just the aesthetics of it. Mm -hmm. And the nub of um, some of the difficulty you describe as this far too simplistic choice that I think people, maybe Americans in particular, have felt that they had to make um, between an idea that this, the universe is created, um, which has a lot of rich, mm -hmm. a lot of rich language and teaching, and um, you know, even just aside from religion attached to it, or the idea that it is all some kind of cosmic accident. And yes, well, you know. As far as the scale, the scale of what we're learning to know, the, the psalmist has better intuitions about it than Sal Richard Dawkins. Um, <laughs> Maimonides has better intuitions than Richard Dawkins, you know? Uh, the, the retreat into an, a completely terrestrial reality that is characteristic of what poses itself as a scientific worldview is bizarre. It's like atavism. There is no way of justifying it over against what science actually is and does, you know? Um, so, but people that are, we're pious toward science. We think 
it does in fact, you know, criticize itself and, and, and overturn itself. It deserves that reputation. Mm. But this, this strange little world that we're presented as being scientific isn't, you know? It's, it's uh, some sort of petrified conception that would have been at home in the 19th century. Hmm. Do you have any... I, no, I actually, being a scientist, I actually agree with Marilyn. Um, I think that uh, the rhetoric of some of my colleagues is it's completely unjustified. You know, I think that uh, once you adopt that there is only one way of understanding the complexity of things, you're just emptying humanity of its value, you know, of the plurality of visions. And so, yes, science is powerful. I love it. I do it. Um, but there are other ways of knowing, you know, and to say that there is only one way of understanding the mind, which is a topic that mm -hmm. Marilyn talks so much about in her book, is just silly, mm -hmm. to be honest. It's, it's impoverishing the richness of, of human culture. Um, and I want to, I, we will talk about the mind. I, I also want to talk about this idea of creation and of myth, um, because Marcelo, you are not a religious person. Marilyn, you are, I think, a, a, a religious person in a very complex, sophisticated sense. I mean, I know some people think of you as a religious writer, and I'm not sure that that statement is, is quite right. But um, certainly someone who, well, you, you preach, and you teach the Old Testament, and you are a big defender of John Calvin. He summed me up. <laughs> so, um, uh, and, and I think that, the, so, I mean, let's talk about creation, you know, just that language and, and the word myth as something that is not, you know, that would be absolutely dismissed by a Richard Dawkins. But I, mean, I think both of you have a real reverence for this, this kind of language and these ways of knowing, even though you might assess them differently. I don't know. Well, um... I think that um, if you look at, for example, the first creation narrative in the Old Testament, it's pretty amazing as an ancient account of creation. The fact that, you know, it, it's perhaps overstating the case, but it, better than anything else, it does anticipate the modern cosmology, the creation of something out of nothing, which might be mythic language, um, but very close. I mean, we can't do much better than that, I think. Um, it, it, it describes the emergence of, of the cosmos and of life in the world in stages. They don't exactly line up with ours, but still, you know, that's a, a, an interesting insight. It's, it's almost an evolutionary account. It's almost evolutionary, yeah. exactly. The second creation narrative, which is the source of a lot of trouble, actually is understood as a fable or a midrash or whatever you want to call it, as early as, uh, you know, just, uh, the, the writer Josephus. Um, and that's what I think it is properly to be understood as. But in any case, the idea of, of the abrupt emerge, emergence of something fantastically beautiful and intricate is descriptive. And people can, you know, people can use the language to, that would call it myth, and I think that myth is the expression of the intuition of cosmology among ancient people. Hmm. 
Um, they didn't have, of course, uh, or perhaps would not have chosen to have the kind of language that, that we use for these kinds of things. But the general perception or intuition that you find in many ancient cultures, so far as I know all of them, that there was a beginning. Even Hesha describes a beginning. Um, that's a profound intuition that did not burst upon modern scientific sensibilities until Erwin Hubble, until the 20th century, you know? So you have people like Einstein and uh, Bertrand Russell and so on who thought it was there was no reason to imagine that the universe had ever right. had a Bertrand beginning Bertrand Russell, all. you quote him, the idea that things must have a beginning is really due to the poverty of our imagination. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And, and who knows what this means, that, that human beings had a profounder intuition than science could confirm into the modern period. But you have to respect it. There it is. Right, so um, <clears throat> I actually wrote a book way before this last one called The Dancing Universe and from creation myths to the Big Bang. And what I do there is I look at all sorts of different creation myths from cultures around the world and different times and I organize them as a good scientist, I guess, in, in, in the ways they dealt with the question of creation, you know, the question of the origin of the world, which to me is the most complicated question you can possibly ask. Right, so I call it the question, right? right. And, um, and yes, there are narratives, most overwhelming narratives are about a beginning, a beginning of time, meaning there was a moment in the past when the universe came to be, but then you also have some narratives where you have a cyclic creation and destruction, like in the Hindu myths, and some of them have an eternal universe, right? There's the giant, the Jains from India that would, uh, try to get away from this cycle of creation and destruction and start asking all these rhetorical questions about God and what was he doing before creation and all sorts of things like that. But um, so then I go and I looked at cosmology in 20th century before we had data. And what happened? All the models, the theories that cosmologists used to explain the universe reproduced these mythic ideas. So there was a universe that was cyclic, just like the dancing of Shiva. There were universes that, at least on paper, were uh, created out of a moment in time, which was Friedman came up with his model in 1922 before Hubble confirmed it, right? And then there was an eternal universe as well. So to me, what's really remarkable is two things. First, that um, all of this shows how we want to know. Right? I mean, the, the unity here between, between the two sides, if you want, is on the questioning, on we need to know our origins. The There's two this, sides, religion and science, you mean? Yes, mm -hmm. you know, the mythic narratives and the scientific narratives, they're both asking the same question, where did everything come from? And then, of course, before data, there was also the universality of human thought, if you want. Like, there were certain ways in which you can, there are only some ways in which you can answer this question. And the scientists repeated them until, of course, data came. And only in the 1960s, we were finally able to kind of discern that, you know, the Big Bang, meaning there was really a moment in time, seems to be the best way to describe what we see. To, to, to begin to speak of beginnings to use that word in a scientific way. Um, I don't know, you know, when I was reading the two of you about this, 
it was the first time that I, I found myself wondering, why is it that we are so, so obsessed with the question of beginnings and origins? I mean, I wonder as a novelist if you have a thought about that. Well, you know, I think, frankly, that as modern people, we struggle under certain prejudices against ourselves, that there are ways in which we have uh, lost contact with, um, you know, the earlier intuitions that actually describe themselves uh, in culture and, and literature and so on. But um, I think, you know, everyone has, everyone wants to have a narrative of personal origins. Most of us want to have narratives of what you might sort of call tribal origins, you know, where did, where did my grandparents come from and why, and that sort of thing, you know. Um, I think that we, our bond with humankind is felt um, as, as a, a, a sort of very much enlarged family narrative of origins in that sense, you know. In, in some sort of feeling that if you know where you came from, you would know who you are. You would know what you should do. You would. We lack definition of ourselves, which is a, an incredibly haunting feature of human life. And I think that often we, you know, if you look at these narratives like the Epic of Gilgamesh or something like that, so it says things about who the gods are, what the purpose of human life is, and so on. I think these are questions that people need, crave, and they take them right back to primal origins. So we, we have this intuitive sense of a connection between origins and purpose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Marilyn, I sen- you struggle a bit, I think, with um, science. I, I don't know if I have this right. So you, that you, you keep saying this, this idea of ancient intuition. Or, you know, you, t- you, you have a sense that... Um, that even when people didn't have the science that we have now to think about the universe, um, we had this ancient intuition of our part in it. And is, is science at play in diminishing that? Is it cultural? Well, I, I don't think we pay enough attention to the kind of science that could could encourage it. We pay uh, attention to what, it, in my opinion, is not real science, which, which alienates us, basically, from ourselves and our ancient origins and the rest of it. Um, I think that, oh, I lost my thought. A terrible thing to do. Um, but there is editing. It's all right. Uh, <laughs> Ask the question again. Life is imperfect, right? Right. <laughs> There's beauty and imperfection. Um, uh, yeah, it, how did we, it, 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 did something happen in science or is it in culture that we, that we lost this ancient intuition of our, of our place in this, our, our, our stake in it? Right. Well, you know, I think that the, what we think of as science or modern science is something that puts into eclipse other forms of thinking that were also efficacious. Richard Feynman uh, has written, um, I, I read an essay of his in which he talks about identity. And he says, it's so amazing that I experience myself as myself over a year of time, that I retain memory and so on, when every atom in my brain would have been changed. Mm. But you can find the same statement, almost syllable by syllable, in John Locke, 
who's writing in the 17th century, who says exactly the same thing. Every atom in my brain would have changed. And the question is, how did John Locke know that? I'm very, you know, how, how is it that the Islamic philosophers that Maimonides was in conversation with were able to quantize time, essentially, as a way of solving the problem of time, you know? How did they do that? How did they know, you know? Um, I, I think that a great deal of what we do scientifically in the modern sense is actually the confirmation of kinds of thinking that we either receive traditionally or would have arrived at by other means. And I think that, I mean, I'm very interested now in trying to see how people thought before they had this word science descend on the conversation in the form that it does now. I mean, I also think that what we have for many centuries thought of as the theological questions, the philosophical questions, they're not necessarily being posed by physicists and neuroscientists. But the things that physicists and neuroscientists are learning are the raw materials of theology and philosophy. I mean, you, Marcelo, you, you talk a lot about being and becoming. You know, that's the kind of language I associate with Paul Tillich. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> right. I, th- um, I think it's impossible to separate us from, from nature. So when you go to the stories of creation and the relationship or the attempts at explanation that they are, they're really a pre-scientific mode of dealing with the unknown, right? I mean, these people must have been completely baffled by existence, just like we are, right? right? And it's not really different. They are not smarter or less smart than we are. They're just like we were. And we looked out and we see, how is it possible that there are these regular cycles in nature, like the sun coming back every day, the seasons, and then there is a volcanic eruption, there is a terrifying total eclipse of the sun. You know, how do you have regular and irregular things going on in nature? Who is in control of that? And so, to me, those preliminary ways of, of making sense, of making meaning, were just attempts as at trying to have some level of control for things which are way beyond people's control. And science is just the new incarnation of the same Mm. sort of effort. Okay, so, but when you as a 21st century theoretical physicist talk about being and becoming, I think you say being precedes becoming, Mm -hmm. what are you talking about now Uh, on the basis of what you know? Right, so... uh, so the notion here, that's a very complicated uh, idea. But so let's talk about the brain, right? Because so, that's really where we are getting to, I guess. Um, and it's wonderful that you quoted Richard Feynman, because he's one of my heroes. And um, great physical physicists from the 20th century. Um, so the question is, how come we having 100 billion neurons uh, are who we are, right? So if you think of the brain as a collection of neurons, so if you adopt a reductionistic approach and say, oh, you know, if I understand how neurons work, I'll understand how the brain works, you're never going to understand how the brain works, right? So one neuron, 10 neurons, 100 neurons will not explain how the brain works. So one of the big questions, I guess, that you're talking about is, how the sense of being, I guess, if you want to appropriate it, say that the fact that I am today who I am and tomorrow I'm going to be who I am as well, 
is embedded in the notion of becoming where everything is in flux and in transformation and cells are being replaced, etc. Right? And that is a big mystery. And I'm not sure that uh, the way cognitive neurosciences uh, investigate the working of the brain can actually shed much light into that. They may be able to understand... Into death? Into, into death, into mm -hmm. that, not death. No, <laughs> I'm not <Okay>. there yet. <laughs> no, so they may be able to understand, um, you know, when you're listening to a song that, that moves you, which parts of a brain are firing and things like that, but that is a long shot from understanding why you're being moved by that. Mm -hmm. Here's a, a, um, a line that you wrote, Marcelo, that is the, is the kind of statement that you're making as a physicist, but it's also just a statement about being human, all right? Symmetry may have its appeal, but it is inherently stale. Some kind of imbalance is behind every transformation. I mean, you could be talking about the cosmos, and you could be talking about me yesterday, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I was, so in this book, I was having the very humble uh, mission of, of trying to create a new aesthetic for physics. <laughs> so basically saying that we need to look at the imperfection if you really want to get at things, and give up the notion that there is this, as we said before, you know, beautiful perfection behind everything, you know. The way, the modes of description that we use are fundamentally incomplete. And so let's embrace the, the imperfection, you know, what's not perfect. Mm -hmm. You know, I was trying to say, do not try to make science into God. Because truly that's the, the idea, right? This notion that there is this oneness, perfection that you can describe through science is basically trying to create a scientific model for God. I'm always surprised when I read about this business about a unifying theory because it seems as if you know you read about it and then you turn the page and there's you found out something radically different about the universe than had been known previously, and and you you know obviously we are not playing with a full deck and we never will be in all probability because we have no idea at the of the scale at which the, the larger universe impacts our galaxy or whatever, you know? Uh, the, you know, finding out that this great halo of hot gas surrounds the Milky Way, as I understand it, mm -hmm. uh, which is, hadn't been discovered before. I think that a big halo of hot gas is probably something that has impact, you know? Um, so long as, or, or things like, um, like, a black, like dark matter, you know? If you can't even define what matter is, how in the world can you make a generalization about the essence of things? I don't understand. It looks to me like a clearly premature impulse. It seems to me as if, was it Democritus that came up with atomic theory? Yes. With it's what? Atomic theory. Oh. It seems like that is as close as we will ever come to a unifying <laughs> you know, theory. Uh, and I don't, knowing that, what do we know? You know, it's only the beginning of every other question. So uh, I'm just amazed that I see this continuing to come up as an issue. You know, Marcelo, I, you make this kind of provocative uh, observation that, that with, the uni with the search for the unified theory, science has set up a parallel to the god of the gaps, mm -hmm. which was the problem 
especially in the 20th century, this idea that God began where our scientific knowledge ran out. And mm. you're saying that now the reality is that um, sort of the unified theory begins where our scientific knowledge runs out. Well, let's, so, so the God of the gaps is, is, is a notion that is old, right, in the sense that even Newton had to use it because when he was talking about how the planets went around the sun, the question was what gave the initial impulse for the planets to move around the sun? So he invoked God. God was a very, very important presence in the Newtonian universe. And so this whole idea of trying to uh, put God where, where we don't understand the world is, is, a, is a terrible idea. I think it's, it's theologically a very bad, very bad move because science will advance, you know, and you will learn more and more about the world, and then God will be squeezed out of this gap and then have to go to another gap, and that's really not where you find, where you find God. And in fact, in David Ferguson's book, you know, uh, on, and, uh, on faith and its critics, he, he makes a very good case for that, saying that if you want to look for God, you look for God through the act of faith, not in what we don't understand of the world. And I think that's, that's very profound, and that should be where people would do it. But the thing about this, where does this unified theory need comes from? That's what always mystified me, even though I was, I was a convert in the beginning, you know? And, and I think it really is a byproduct of having lived with monotheistic faiths for so long. So culturally, it's very uh, enticing you know, for, for science to come up with this one explanation of everything. And I really trace the roots of that through monotheistic faith. Mm-hmm. My, my, my colleagues would hate me for this, right? because they're saying, they're trying to move away from it, but I don't see how you could, really. I wonder um, what questions you might have of each other. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see, Marilyn. So you, you speak so eloquently of, of the need for diversity in understanding things. Maybe you can talk to us a little bit about that and you know, why this kind of one way, one track of science is misleading us. Well, I'm always, my first criticism of that version of science is that I think that it does not at all describe the, the best the science does. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, because science is, its genius is, is self-criticism. Um, when you find out that the universe is accelerating and accelerating in its rate of acceleration and so on, this is not supposed to be true, and the moment that they find out that all major assumptions have been overthrown, there's rejoicing in the scientific community, you know? <laughs> that's and that's a lovely, you know, that is right. the, the authority of science for me. Um, the, um, the fact that we cannot be articulate about ourselves, and I think that's deeply true. I think that, uh, that the arts, are our effort to articulate the experience of self and mind and so on that is, is uh, inaccessible to scientific description. Um, that, that deep yearning that is as ancient as, as the desire to, to know where we came from and the rest of it has been disallowed as a legitimate part of, of the human record and the human conversation. 
And this seems to me to be completely arbitrary. Um, and, and along with, of course, other, along with other forms of the profound self-exploration of human inwardness is the rejection of religion, which is, uh, is also put out of account. Um, there's nothing really more universal, I think, in human cultures than, than the impulse to religion. If you were looking at it dispassionately, the question of what people are, you would have to take this very enormous and elaborate self-description seriously as a datum, so to speak. Um, and, and I think that uh, if, if people have interests that are scientific but don't tend toward addressing questions of that kind, fine, they've distinguished themselves, it's beautiful. But they can't act as if they have addressed those questions when in fact everything that they do is actually relevant to another set of issues. I think you're actually saying that to dismiss that very ancient and pervasive aspect of human life and human culture is irrational on some level. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and you know, and to think of science as separate from spirituality to me is a big mistake. You know, there is nothing that says that science should be dispassionate about the spirit or the life of the spirit. And to me, it's quite the opposite. It's exactly because I feel very spiritually connected with nature that I am a scientist. You know, and and and. And, and, and to write equations on a blackboard and to come up with models about how the nature works is, is in a sense, a form of worship of that spirituality. You know? And I feel that very concretely all the time. Do you have a question for, of Marcelo? Oh, my. <laughs> One thing that I find when I'm reading you know, scientists that write in a popular way, write in these issues, and that frankly I've found a couple of times in your book, is a tendency to uh, use the word explain when I would say the appropriate word is describe. Mm. You know, you, you can, you know, if, if they figure out the fine points of photosynthesis, you know, maybe you will say, well, it's a quantum phenomenon or something like that. That's a description. It's not an explanation. You know, and and perhaps there are things that are not uh, don't make themselves available to explanation. But that does not mean that description stands in the place of explanation. It's sort of like if you somebody says, "Why does a clock tell time?" You can you can describe the mechanism of the particular clock, or you can say, "People arrived at a convenient definition of one day." divided it into arbitrary segments, and made a mechanism that would measure those segments because culture required timekeeping with that degree of precision. Now, that's not a complete explanation, but it is explanatory, whereas the other one is only descriptive. And I think that's a very important distinction that is not made because very often, uh, when people look at religious accounts of things, people looking at them from the outside, they say, no, that's not an explanation. Actually, the explanation is that it was beneficial to the leopard's existence that it blended into a shadowy landscape, hence spots. Mm. You know what I mean? This is descriptive. It is not explanatory. I'm fine with that. I mean, I think that... Uh, <laughs> I don't... I don't think I have any claims there. I would say that um, 
we are just trying to make sense of, of physical reality in the best way we can. And, um, and perhaps what, what you are implicitly referring to is the lack of humility that sometimes, sometimes comes with the, with the scientific kind of rhetoric, you know, that there is sort of this, like, this is how it is kind of thing. And Only polemical science. Other science can be so chaste and beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> but those are not to get the public voice, usually. Yes, know, true. Right? True. So the ones that probably bother you the most are the ones that get the public voice and that do make rhetorical statements about things such as, now science can understand the origin of the universe, you know, which is absolutely not true, you know, formally not true. You know. But the statement comes out in the media and in books by very famous people all the time. Right? And that bothers me as much as it bothers you. <laughs> so I think there is a need for, uh, for, for some, some of these uh, people to kind of really take take measure of how science is actually practiced, you know, and we are in the, act, in the, in the, in the, in the business of, of modeling things, you know, and to model things we separate them from the rest and we cut the boundaries and, and we have limitations in that way of doing things, you know, and, and sometimes when they sell science to the general public, they sell it in a way that sounds like we've done it all, we've figured it all out, this is the answer, and that's just not true, you know. Well, somehow it's in the nature of media and our public dialogue that it's not the humblest voices of religion or science who that is so true. make their way in front to, to microphones and cameras. Right, but some of us, you know, try But here to... you are in front of a microphone. <laughs> right. Um, I wonder how each of you would understand the sense of this famous statement of Einstein. Um, religion without science is blind, and science without religion is lame. Let me start. I'll start. Well, you know, um, <clears throat> Einstein is someone who has to be taken incredibly seriously. I think that, <laughs> I think that's probably <laughs> obvious, but in any case, I, you know, I don't want to uh, refuse him uh, language that he found necessary. And it, he, his references to God that he makes consistent very, very frequently, I think, are a way of establishing a larger space, a richer reality, a, perhaps a, a, a field of, of the unknowable, the unarticulated, you know. Um, and so I, I, I see him claiming a bigger space for science than the normal language of science necessarily implies. I think he's talking about there being play, there being, you know, things at work in reality that are not things that uh, perhaps people would see if it were written as formula or in, in ordinary scientific discourse. Um, I think that this, I mean, I would say, of course, that this, this uh, is consistent with a religious impulse. At the same time that uh, I utterly respect Einstein's uh, either discretion or you know, refusal of those categories, uh, he's, just a, you know, he's just saying his mind. So he um, talks about cosmic religious feeling. And um, 
And he says that the, his motivation to do science is that he has this cosmic religious feeling. That's exactly the expression, at least in English, that he uses. And he says that that cosmic religious feeling is a sense, is a relationship that we have with the mysterious, right? And he talks about the mysterious, right, several times. And uh, to him, um, the devotion to deal with this mysterious, to the things that we don't know about the world and about nature, is a deeply religious devotion. So to, to his notion of religion, science and religion are just one thing, and that's why mm -hmm. he's talking about the two of them needing each other. And, and is, is, that a, is that a statement that makes sense to you personally? Absolutely, mm -hmm. yes. I think that was, I wasn't using that expression, but that's what I was trying to articulate you know, a little bit when I talked about spirituality and my, why I do it. Yeah, Right. very much so. I, I think that's so interesting, the way um, scientists use religious language even when they're not religious. And Einstein is a good example. I mean, even um, there was language he used that was, that was more spiritual in some way. And then there was him saying, God doesn't play dice with the universe, which had nothing to do with religion. But right. then Niels Bohr came back and said, who was Einstein to tell God what to do? Right? But I mean, I think it's so interesting, and you see that all throughout the literature, that scientists use the language of God. And, and Marilyn, maybe you've kind of put your, you've articulated that. It's about claiming a larger space, and it's a space of mystery. Um, and you use the word, you've been talking about spirituality. I mean, I recently interviewed David Sloan Wilson, who may be here somewhere, who said he, he also someone who's not religious, but said he thinks that spirit is a word that scientists can reclaim because we talk about the spirit of inquiry. Mm -hmm. um, you use the word soul a lot. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, I, I, I think that whole use of language is very intriguing. Well, you know, it's also uh, true, as, as you said, that they are the inheritors of religious exactly. tradition. You know, that, that the, the, the largest scale thought that the human race generated for millennia was religious thought. And uh, we have a very br brief history, relatively speaking, of scientific thought, which from its beginning, and I think continuously, is indebted to the frame of reality that religious thought actually established, deeply established. And that was the case I was making with the unified theory. We're still there. You know, we're still doing that, I think. But there's also there are ways to talk about truths or truths, in fact, that you can't just talk about in scientific language. I mean, you both, you both also speak a lot about beauty. Scientists speak a lot about beauty. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to beautiful language, I mean, a lot of it, Marilyn, is more in your sphere. <laughs> <laughs> it's strange. There, I've, I talk to people at various special fields, and their lament is typically that nobody in their field writes well. You know, and, and somehow or other people, energies get poured into another vessel, and, and very, very rarely uh, are people actually articulate in a, in a bellatristic sort of way about even the things that they most love and know best. And, mm -hmm. But you know, one of the things that I have, uh, you know, if you look back at classical theology, right up to, say, somebody like Jonathan Edwards, 
They talk about the universe having an arbitrary constitution, which means that there is profound asymmetry uh, in the order of things. And they use this as a theological proof. You know, and I, frankly, I forget the immediate example that Jonathan Edwards used, but we could say the weakness of gravity, you know, which is anomalous in the terms that these, in, in which these things are discussed. And everything depends on the fact of the weakness of gravity, you know? And, and so if I were Jonathan Edwards, I would say clearly this is a, a, a universe that is not coherent, that is not, you know, symmetrically self-mirroring or self-referential. And the fact of its asymmetry is the, is the evidence of its having been created. I, um, <clears throat> I think that um, this is, I mean, I don't know what, how to respond to this uh, <laughs> directly, but I can say one thing that I think is very important, that uh, people tend to think that, that science is taking the beauty of life and of mystery away from them. Now, that the more we understand the universe, the less we matter, right? And, um, and I try to think precisely in reverse way. You know, I say, if you look out at the universe and if you look at, say, our planets around us, they're all dead, right? They're horrible place. I mean, they're beautiful in some ways, but they're not the place you want to go for a vacation, you know? <laughs> you don't go to, Mars is a frozen desert. Venus is complete hell, even though we call it the beauty star and everything. It's a, it's a horrible place to be, you know? It's full of sulfuric acid and it's incredibly hot. So the point is that if you look around and now, because of the remarkable new science we're doing, we can go out and study other planets, going around other stars, and what we are finding more and more is how precious our own planet is, you know, and how rare our own planet is. So one way of looking at all, of all this new science is actually showing that it is reverting us back to our centrality in the universe, not perhaps as the geometric center of the universe, like pre-Copernican, but as the people that actually matter. We are the things that matter, because we are the things that can think about existence, and we are extremely rare. So there is this whole new dimension to science that is bringing our importance back you know, in, in the big scheme of things, and so it's not just cosmic dust and this, you know, or stardust, but it's much more than that. Yeah, I, the way you talk about that, it, it, it's almost like science having social implications. Very, I mean, you, you, here's something you wrote: unless we accept our fragility and cosmic loneliness, we will never act to protect what we have. Right. Exactly. That's my well that's my stated, mantra. huh? Yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, yeah. Go on. Well, there's just you know the the rareness. I mean, the singularity, so far as we know, of this planet, and and it's a, it's a disappearingly small size relative to the universe, and yet at the same time we're looking how many billions of miles away. You know, the idea that the human mind, off this little fleck of dust, is projecting itself. Mm-hmm. into the universe. You know, that just brings tears to my eyes. That's the most beautiful. Uh, you know, there are lots of beautiful human gestures, but that's right up there, I think. Absolutely. That we can actually make a statement about 
a star that has been shining for 10 billion years because we are collecting that, that light that has traveled <laughs> for 10 billion years towards somebody's telescope. How amazing is that, right? So, um, and that is, if you want to make one unifying statement about science that would really be true, is that the laws of physics and the laws of chemistry do seem to hold across the whole of the observable universe. And that is an amazing thing, right? That we have uncovered that without going anywhere, right? right? But we, we made the universe come to us, right? And that to me is something to bring tears to your eyes, you know? And to realize within this whole big wide universe how precious and rare this planet is. And in particular, this, these aggregates of molecules that are able to think. That's pretty remarkable, right? Now, you can say many things about that, and you can interpret that in many different ways, but if you just take the facts as they are, that's, to me, already mind-boggling enough. Here's a line of Reverend Ames in Gilead. This is an interesting planet. It deserves all the attention you can give it, <laughs> which is another way to say it in a different context. Absolutely. Mm, just before we finish, let's talk a little bit about mind which takes us a little bit outside the realm of physics, but very much into uh, your writing, Marilyn. Mm -hmm. um, and somehow the primacy, the centrality of our minds, the power of them, even in all of this discerning of distant galaxies. Well, it's, I, I think one of the things that is fascinating is that we don't know who we are, we don't, human beings in acting out history describe themselves, and every new epic is a new description of what human beings are. Every life is a new description of what human beings are. Every work of science, every object of art is new information. And it is inconceivable at this point that we could say anything final about what the human mind is because it is demonstrating, you know, in, in beautiful ways, in terrifying ways, that it will surprise us over and over and over again, you know? And, and uh, if I read something that seems to me, I mean, we, we, we have mind in two senses, or several senses, but one of them is the sort of the individual striving mind, I want to come up to the mark, I want to follow my passion, I want to, you know, uh, let myself think about something that seems beautiful to me. There's that mind. And then there is the, the larger collective mind that somehow or other seems to sort of magnify, mm. uh, you know, impulses and so on that occur among us individually. And um, so in the course of living our lives, we find out who we are. And in the course of living our collective lives, as human beings or Americans or however you want to cut, you know, cut it, we're finding out who we are, you know? And, and uh, no statement, no statement is adequately based because the information simply is not at hand. And what, you know, as, as the revelation of ourselves develops, it will always surprise us, it will transcend what we have assumed to be true of us, assumed to be our limits up to that point. You know, when you think how even the most brilliant people living, you know, in the first century would see how we know and what we know now and so on, 
which is basically a pure elaboration of what they'd already started. Nevertheless, they would be completely astonished. They would say that human beings could have done such a thing, you know? We know that. We know things about our minds because we've seen them reaching and reaching and unfolding in this uncanny way that they do. And I just think that undervaluing mind at the unitary scale or as a collective scale, it, it distorts what we're capable of, especially when we make invidious assumptions about what minds are, you know, especially when we don't, when we don't fuel this phenomenon, expand this, this uh, range of possibility. Um, I don't know, that's what I think. I think the mind is fantastically competent and beautiful and in a very large degree unexplored. Marcelo, is this, um, this new frontier of mind and consciousness, is it challenging for physics? Or how, where does it fit into your way of seeing the world? It's, it's very challenging because <clears throat> the way physics traditionally has worked is through this reductionistic method, right? To, you, you look at a complicated problem, you break it down into small parts, you understand how these small parts work and then try to make sense of the whole. And, and this extrapolation works beautifully when you're talking about stars and galaxies, but it really fails miserably when you're talking about the mind or the brain, right? So as I said earlier on, you can't understand the brain by understanding how a neuron works. And so it poses a tremendous difficulty for physics because we can't model the brain, mm -hmm. right? And physicists, that's what we do for a living. We make models, we test our hypothesis, and we need a different kind of explanatory dis descriptive tool <laughs> because, because the way we have dealt with things just won't work for the brain. So what would that be now, right? So there's this whole new notion that comes from complexity theory that there are, the mind is an emergent phenomenon that we can't quite explain that has to do with the concatenation of many different groups of neurons at the same time. So the interesting thing about that is, is that if that is true, then new laws will emerge at different levels of complexity. And you can't go from one level to the other level directly. You really need a completely different kind of explanation. And, and we're not there yet, but it's just an alternative way of thinking about how the brain works. And um, to me, given the complexity, even if we go there and we gain some level of understanding above what we know now, it's always going to be incomplete, just like Marilyn said. But I think that part is, not, is exciting for you. The, Isn't? The, 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 incomplete, the fact that it will be incomplete, the, the fact that there's there will always be more to learn. Yes, I, when, you, when I was saying this, I was thinking, can we ever build a machine that thinks? Right? That's really the question. Right? Because if you could build a clock that thinks, right, then you'd really say, yes, we mechanize the brain, and we understand exactly how it works, and what are the rules that make it all make sense. But I am a skeptic when it comes to that. I really am, at least for the foreseeable future. I don't see how even increasing the power of computers 
we'll be able to do that. What we will be able to do is what the internet is already doing, which is creating an enormous data bank of information that will almost look intelligent. But you will always be asking the questions. You know, it's the asking of the question that is the mystery, mm. not so much how you find the ways to answer it. Mm. I think that's a wonderful thought, that the asking of the questions is the mystery. It occurred to me when I was reading both of you and thinking about this conversation um, how much a novelist and a scientist, a physicist, have in common as creators and discoverers. I'm flattered. <laughs> so am I. I mean, novelists create universes, right? Talk about a multiverse. You know, the mind of a novelist is a huge multiverse because they are creating all these different dynamics and people that don't exist. So in a sense, you know, you are playing with inventing lives and minds and stories. So you are amplifying the mind every time you do such a thing. Yes, there's the, the problem of plausibility, you know, making what it even appears to be a sort of working model of a human personality such a delicate thing. I'm sure, <laughs> you know. Yes, how is it that you say that uh, fiction is, 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 is trying to, it's telling lies, but want to make sure that they sound like true. Exactly. Right? So, <laughs> and that's, uh, we're trying to do something similar. We're trying to make models which are never the whole truth of nature. That is a fundamental point. Every model is a lie, but some models explain more than others. I tell my students, actually, that, that the mind continuously creates hypotheses you know, tomorrow is a hypothesis. You have some theory of the general shape of tomorrow, which could be completely false, completely inaccurate. But you have to have the hypothesis in order to be, to be sane and act rationally in the world and so on. And when you're writing fiction, you're doing something of the same kind. You, you know, or when you're, when you're making a, a scientific theory, you're doing something of the same kind. This is the best model I can create of what this reality would be, you know. And, and in fiction, unless the fiction fails, the hypothesis does not get exploded, but at the same time, you always understand its hypothetical nature, you know? Whereas in science, the hypothesis is floated and retrieves what it can and explodes if it needs to, you know? Do you feel, when you write do you feel, and you create characters, do you feel like they drive you in a certain way? Absolutely. Abs and thank God when they do. <laughs> <laughs> Because we do too, you know, when you're working on a, on a, on a technical problem, it seems to f have a way to go that we're not always in control. We're just making sure all the minus signs and the plus signs match, <laughs> you know, but, but it really has a way that it wants to go, which is kind of beyond what we have total control of. That's fascinating. It is. And when you find a solution or something that looks like a solution, you get emotionally moved to an amazing extent, especially when it's a surprising thing, you know. It, it really is a spiritual emotion. Like, I've, I've had this a few times, not many. Einstein probably had it several times, <laughs> but I just had a couple. But when I, when I have this, it really is something transcendent. Do you think that, for example, teleology might be a, an inadequate way of articulating what you're talking about. And it's, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. teleology is sort of forbidden, you know, 
but you can feel the shape of something pulling you towards something that you don't intend, and it's as if the shape is somehow intrinsic and the conclusion is somehow necessary. It's funny because you phrased it in the negative. <laughs> so that's very smart. Um, <laughs> I maybe um, I, I I I am always afraid of teleology. You know, theology has so many different uh, um, traps, right? And and so the question is always if it's teleology, who is in control? And and I don't know. You know, exactly. who are your characters that are driving you? Yeah. Right. But you don't know who's in control, and you have the feeling that there is some sort of intrinsic con control emerging in the, in the sense, for example, that if you're creating a character and you ask him to do the wrong thing, use the wrong language, or leave when the conversation isn't over, he refuses, you know? <laughs> you know? And I'm sure that when you're, when you're doing yeah. something like that, you just you, you take a wrong turn. And it tells you it's a wrong turn yes. in some way. Absolutely. You, you know you're going wrong. You completely do. And sometimes, and that's what's hard about science, I don't know about fiction writing, is that sometimes you're forced to go where you don't want to go because otherwise you're violating a certain law. You know? And that is just horrifying, right? Because you really want to prove something, but you can't because it's wrong. And you really believe in it, but that's not good enough, right? And that's the, the sort of the ruthless aspect, you know, of science in the sense that, um, that, I don't know, maybe as a fiction you have a little more freedom, you know, than we do in that sense. Or another kind, you know. So, you know, I think in a, a very remarkable way we've ended up back at the mystery of creation and even wandered into free will, but we don't have time to go there this evening. Um, so I want to thank Marcelo Gleiser and Marilyn Robinson and um, Templeton Foundation and Center for Theological Inquiry for hosting this. It was lovely to be here. Thank you. Marcelo Gleiser and I are here this evening because we met thanks to NASA uh, which brought us together in the Library of Congress to be on an advisory panel for the appointment of a first research chair at the Library of Congress on astrobiology, the study of life in the universe and its implications for society. And uh, we also felt, as I think uh, Krista and I did when we first met, kindred spirits. And, and uh, I think we've seen why this evening. So on behalf of the center, May we first thank uh, our, our guest, Marcelo Gleiser, who is so openly engaged with Krista. Thank you very much. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> but, but it's not raining. <laughs> um, I do what no one else can do, and that is get Marlon Robinson to come away for three days. I, um, <laughs> The first time I, I worked this magic at the Center of Theological Inquiry way back several years ago, I invited her to a three-day consultation on the future of theological inquiry at the Center. And someone came up to me and more or less wrung my neck and said, I've been trying for 10 years to get Marlon Robinson to come and give a one-hour lecture. And how did you get it for three weeks? And it's uh, three days. And then three weeks, uh, when she ran a three-week writing workshop for theologians. Uh, and it's quite simple. She has a deep passion for theology, and uh, you should try it sometime. It really uh, <laughs> works magic. Uh, but can we thank um, 
someone that I'm very proud to say with the Board of Trustees as a senior member of the Centre of Theological Inquiry, Marlon Robinson. Thank you. And finally, you can see how I got through a lonely six months in Princeton without my wife. Um, this wonderful uh, weekly um, window on the human soul and the mystery of the universe, which is on being with Krista Tippett. Thank you very much. <laughs> and now, uh, can I speak to those who are in the symposium around the table tomorrow morning? You have homework. In your pack, there was a, a survey asking you to read it and to uh, reflect on your thinking on spiritual progress as we begin this wonderful two-day symposium together tomorrow. Please fill it in and bring it with you to the opening session. We're greatly honored that Dr. Robert Bella will open our symposium tomorrow as we discuss his remarkable book, uh, Religion and Human Evolution, at 9.15 in the um, American Philosophical Society. Can we again thank tonight uh, our guests uh, Dr. John Templeton and the Board of Advisors of the John Templeton Foundation for your support of a three-year program at the center that is indeed uh, broadening that narrower pillar into a great wide inquiry. And we want to thank you, sir, and your foundation for your great generosity. Thank you. And now there is coffee and dessert, and the staff will guide you to it, and we wish you a very good evening. Can we thank again our three conversationalists?